Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, back in July, the federal government in Canada put out an estimate that the legal cannabis market would likely capture about a quarter of the total demand in the first month of legalization and that that number would continue to rise as we went further and further into legalization, into that to whole new landscape. But so we now know... We have three stores open in Vancouver. We were at the opening of one last weekend. More stores are in the approval process. How has it affected where people purchase their cannabis? Well, let's bring in Neil Boyd, who is a professor in the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. Neil Boyd, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Was that a, a good estimate or do you think that was a reasonable estimate that we'd start with about a quarter of the demand and work up from there? Yeah, I think it was actually over a year, not a month, that uh, Health Canada was estimating that uh, that we'd see that kind of rollout, and uh, that makes some sense. People are going to take time, and uh, of course, the openings haven't exactly been um, quick, uh, particularly in a place like Ontario, uh, but in, in British Columbia as well. Um, we've, as you uh, indicated earlier, we've only seen three stores open uh, in Vancouver. There is a mail order uh, system that has actually uh, been used quite frequently. Um, so we're, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a transitional period. We're getting to a point where um, people are beginning to recognize that this is here to stay. And, uh, and so it's a matter of getting things up and running. It's not that different from alcohol post-prohibition, where many municipalities, uh, jurisdictions decided that they didn't want to have alcohol sales. And Gradually over time, that has changed, and I expect that we'll see something similar with cannabis. Uh, do you think in the in the municipalities and the cities that aren't going to be having any of the legal stores, does that mean that people will will travel to neighboring places to buy it, or will they continue buying it from an illegal source? I think it depends on the distances. So, for example, um, if there isn't any cannabis for sale in Richmond, people aren't going to necessarily just. Uh, source out the black illicit market. They're going to just drive a few miles next door to Vancouver where um, there are uh, uh, plenty of options. And uh, if, on the other hand, we're talking about a community uh, that's much more remote and there's no sale, um, in that instance, you may well see a continuation of the illicit market. And how much do you think price plays into it? Even last Saturday when I was covering the opening of the store, this turned out to be the second store in Vancouver, some of the people coming out said, eh, the price is a bit high for what we're getting. I guess, but you know, if you look at the price of cannabis, which has been illegal for so many years, um, price per unit high is much, much lower than price per unit of alcohol uh, high. Or, and, and that difference... Um, is is quite significant. I you know I I don't know how much price is going to play into this. Obviously, if it's double the price, that's going to be a problem. But uh, I think people are going to be willing to pay at least ten to thirty percent more uh, for information about the THC and CBD levels, for some guarantees of product safety with respect to contamination by pesticides and other contaminants. Um, I, you know, I I, I think we we'll, we're going to see a gradual transition.
And, and what about quality? One of the other uh, things was, and this is just based on one customer from last weekend, but he opened it and said, oh, this is super dry. This isn't what I wanted. I probably won't come back here and purchase this. Is it that learning curve, though, of people, like you said, knowing exactly what they're getting and, and, and uh, the product and then figuring out what it is on the legal market that they want? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I think if, if, um, if the product isn't uh, comparable to the illicit market, that's going to be a problem. But <clears throat> there's quite a range of product. If you look online for the, at the BC cannabis stores, um, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a substantial range, not only of, of prices, but of potencies. And, uh, and so this, this concern about one particular product being too dry, um, I think it's going to be a, a, you know, a matter of people sampling and making choices. And that's, that sampling, that, that making choices, is not something that, for cannabis users, that has been available until now. It's, it's really been a, a choice of a, of a very few items and, and no clear indication of potency. And it's not really been a choice either to legally grow uh, your own. Do you think there will be a shift to people now that uh, they're allowed to grow a certain a number of plants? Not much. Um, you know, we can compare this with alcohol again, and very few people will um, make their own wine or make their own beer. Beer a little more common because it's possible to make a quality of beer that rivals the quality uh, available through retail, but it's much more difficult to do that with wine. So people may do this with cannabis if they're confident that they can produce a quality that's comparable to the retail quality and it's not too inconvenient for them to grow, but much will depend on their circumstances in terms of the space they have, uh, whether they want to you know, go to the trouble of doing this. As I said earlier, you know, cannabis is, is, is pretty inexpensive. It, it was pretty inexpensive even when it was illegal, and it's not going to be much more expensive than that now. And on the law side of it, I think I, I was seeing that for the tickets that have been handed out for people with cannabis, a lot of the, the bulk of the tickets have been for improper storage while driving. Is that something that also is people see legalization and think it, it's legal to, to transport it, to not realizing that having something on your dashboard is illegal or having it not properly stored is, is still a, a, an offense that you can get a ticket for? Yeah, I just don't see it as really any different from uh, driving with an open bottle of wine or an open beer in the car, that's, that's not legal. Um, so if you've, got, if you've got cannabis properly stored and, and, um, and sealed and it's in your car, that's one thing. But if you've got you know, a, an open uh, uh, canister or something like that on the dash, that's a different issue. And, and that's appropriately responded to. Uh, it, it does seem to be, uh, and I know we're making the comparison between alcohol and cannabis. There's not really anything else that, that as close to make the right. comparison. Yeah. Uh, but if somebody, somebody was, we were talking about the, the number of stores, uh, particularly in Vancouver, that are still open, that are now illegal. They're not legal stores. They don't have the, the permits. They, do, they haven't gone through the, pro, the approval process. Right. Uh, if somebody was doing that with alcohol, they would likely be shut down immediately. Uh, does it seem strange that with these dispensaries, uh, there were told that by the end of the month, they will be shut down, but they're still operating. Uh, they will be shut down. I, I don't have much doubt about that. I think it's a matter of timing. Some of the dispensaries um, are um, going to be given licenses. Um, I would think that that's, you know, the, the, it's the dispensaries or the retail outlets, if we want to call them that, um, that haven't had um, 
any willingness to, to go along with the regulations first that Vancouver put in place and then uh, with the regulations that the provinces put in place, I, I think that you're going to see those stores shut down. And, and I think that's appropriate. We want a regulated market. Um, as you said earlier, you know, we wouldn't accept this with alcohol. And, and granted, I mean, the dangers of, uh, of selling moonshine whiskey are much da- greater than the dangers of selling illicit cannabis. But the same set of principles prevails. That is, that you want to protect the consumer with respect to the quality of the product, and you want to ensure that any consumer who buys this product knows precisely what they're getting. And, and that's not possible uh, in the illicit market in the way that it is in the illicit market. And and if we go way back to when this was still a, a distant thing that was happening, when legalization was, was far on the horizon, uh, there was a lot of talk about the illicit market, if there were there were gang ties, that there was a big drug trade that, that cannabis was part of, and, and there was fear that we wouldn't be able to take that out of that, or there would be clashes because of that. Is that, is that still a concern at all? I don't think so. I think, you know, that has been changing over the past five to ten years. There's been a recognition that um, this is, uh, this is a, since uh, Colorado and Washington legalized, that this is about to change. And I, you know, it, the genie is out of the bottle. It's not going back in. Um, if anything, um, what we might see is that uh, the U.S. will legalize federally and... Um, uh, and then, um, you know, this will just be a, another um, market. And, and, it, and it may well be that the values of the product uh, will slump quite dramatically. Um, these are agricultural products, and uh, much depends on the extent. I, I mean, the other tension here, though, is that um, you, you develop, we're already seeing the development of a market segmentation. So, so people are going to... Uh, put on offer different types of cannabis with different kinds of attributes. And, and so we are going to see inexpensive, expensive. We're going to see a lot of research about quality. Um, that the industry isn't going away now. It's, it's, um, it's a global industry, and um, it, uh, you know, for better or worse, this is what we have. And do you think when we talk about the research side, um, there were there were people again at the opening that knew exactly what they wanted, saying this is what I uh, this is what I, I ingest to, to right. relax. This is yeah. what I do when I'm feeling this and this. Is is that going to be something more more kind of commonplace? Do you think in that or or that, that I people... think it's already there. I mean, I think people you know make decisions about whether they want to use cannabis that. Uh, has a high CBD and low THC content. That is cannabis that really isn't at all intoxicating. Um, other people like um, much higher THC, and then it's complicated. There are there are a lot of other constituents parts, I guess, to cannabis than just THC and CBD, terpenes, and and so people will develop choices. One of the interesting questions will be around the extent to which particular types of cannabis can be reproduced in the way that, for example, a, a, a bottle of Cote d'Aron from France can be reproduced so that every time you open the bottle, you get a predictable experience. Um, I suspect that we're going to see something similar with cannabis, and we're going to see certain kinds of cannabis emerge as um, more valuable than others. Uh, you know, this is, I think, uh, what, what one has when one has a regulated market for a product that millions of consumers want to use. And do you think that's something, will we see that within a year, within five years? Is there any way to know? I think within five years. I mean, I think 
I think the first year is just going to be we're, we're going to see this process of of um, a changeover to the um, licit market from the illicit. And I've been a bit surprised at how reluctant um, or or how slow how slowly some provinces have moved uh, to establish retail and, and so forth. But you know there are online sales virtually everywhere now, um, and. Um, I, you know, if, if uh, much depends, of course, on um, on pricing and on uh, availability, but I think uh, the, this may take a little longer than a year or two. But uh, I'm pretty sure that um, people are going to move to a, a legal market because they're going to get so much more information than they ever could have in the illegal market. All right, we'll leave it there. Neil Boyd, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. You bet. Thank you. Yeah, I think we can all agree that there are people, myself included, that can go a little over the top when it comes to their dog. And yes, my dog has his own Twitter handle. I sometimes dress him up for Halloween. He does sleep in the bed right beside me. And this is the subject of a new article about this global trend where we consider pets part of the family. And uh, I'm uh, pleased to have read this and seen that there are benefits to doing this. Well, Lisa Carver, is a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University, uh, Aging and Communication and Technologies. And she joins us now to talk more about uh, this article. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, the, the first line of it says, uh, there is a growing global trend to consider pets as part of the family and that it does have these benefits. What are the benefits to doing this? Well, I mean, the benefits are really right across the spectrum. We have uh, physical health benefits, like pets can help reduce our stress levels, um, lower our blood pressure. They, um, people with pets have improved recovery rates from heart surgery. They also help us psychologically. They can um, increase our, our, our morale, help with depression in some cases, um, help children with ADHD, and um, they, they help uh, even with child development. The ch- children who are raised with pets um, tend to have higher levels of self-esteem and often more empathy than children who are not raised with pets. So it's, it's amazing just from the health benefits perspective. I could go on and on, but I won't. <laughs> when we talk about uh, pets and, and treating them as part of the family, what does that actually mean, though? Because I think people will hear that and think, well, well pets are part of the family, unless we're talking about a working animal on a farm or a service dog, maybe. That, and even that would be part of the family. What, what, how do you define considering them parts of the family? Okay, so I think there's two important clarifications on that. One is that there are still people, a lot of people actually, who consider pets as property. So these are people who they enjoy their pets, but when a pet gets old, they'll drop it off at the local SPCA or put it for free on Kijiji so they can get a new one. Um, They're not really concerned that that animal may be facing euthanasia or, um, you know, because it may have health-related issues or may not uh, adapt well to the shelter environment. Um, so these, these people just consider that pets are fun to have, but they're, they're exchangeable. They're just like any other form of property. When it's time for a, a new TV or a new iPhone, you just get a new one. So there are those people. Then there's people who consider pets as family, as, as animals, versus those who actually treat them like they're people. 
and the healthiest the healthiest relationship between humans and animals is when we acknowledge that they are not people so we don't try to make them do people things but we are attached to them and we love them and we incorporate them as you said they sleep in our beds well there's some people who say that's not the best thing but <laughs> my dogs sleep in my bed too so um and i have a whole bunch of german shepherds i have a very big bed um so you know there's there's people who who pretend they are people and that's very hard on a dog for example or a cat because they're not people they want to do dog things right they want to run after the ball and sniff butts and do things like that so we have to remember that they are animals but we have this affection for them and we do we make them immensely part of our family we call them our fur babies or our kids and can we go too far? And I think you kind of touched on this, that we treat mm-hmm. them like people, because there is then this attachment. And, and when inevitably, if, if nature plays out the way it's supposed to, our, our, those little bodies don't last as long as ours. And we say goodbye to our pets. Uh, the grief can be overwhelming. Can we take it too far? Um, actually, there's a lot of research that shows that, that the grief that people feel when they lose a pet can be as intense as the grief we feel for when we lose other human beings, and that that's normal. So we shouldn't feel, because let's face it, some people spend far more time with their pets than they do any other human being. They may love their human family members, but for example, a single person, a man or a woman, who has an empty nest, maybe they have children, but they never see their children, they're living at home, the one they come home to after work, or if they're retired, the one they spend their days with is their animal. And so that bond is really quite intense and quite real, and it, it's not too far, and it's not, um, it's not strange that, that they would feel an intense loss when, they, when that animal dies. It's, it's actually quite normal. Where we go too far is when we dress them up in human clothes and expect them to eat at the dinner table and not do their doggy style or cat style or bunny style, you know, usual activity. <laughs> That's going too far. <laughs> is it going too far? I mean, in Vancouver, it rains a lot, so you often see dogs in rain jackets. Is that going too far, do you think? I don't think so. I mean, you know, in I live in Ontario, and when it's minus 30 and there's a lot of salt on the roads, people put booties on their, on their dogs if they take them for walks, or they put coats on them because the salt can get in their pads and cause them physical discomfort. And, of course, the cold, especially with the thin-coated breeds, um, can actually, you know, make them unwell or, again, cause them tremendous discomfort. So remember, we're pulling our animals from all around the world with breeds that are not designed for our climates. And so if you've got a, a dog that doesn't enjoy getting wet, you know, um, I used to have a Bichon Frise who hated the water, hated going out in the rain. You couldn't get her to go out in the, if it was raining. So that kind of dog, putting a raincoat on makes perfect sense. Uh, we've been talking a lot about dogs. Does your research look at, at other animals too as far as uh, is, is the benefit, depending on what kind of animal pet you're drawn to, are the benefits the same? The benefits seem to be largely tied to attachment. So if you're somebody who gets very attached to a rabbit, there are people who are, are extremely attached to their ferrets or ponies. You know, you have people who actually have house ponies. Um, or even even horses out in the field, they're extremely attached to them. The benefits come from that attachment. So the animals who live with us and we, we learn to care for are the ones we tend to be more attached to. The dogs that are kept chained up in a yard or a kennel in the yard, we don't get the same health benefits because we're generally not as attached to those animals. 
Now, of course, I'm saying generally, there are, of course, exceptions. And one of the things uh, that uh, every summer in Vancouver, it comes up uh, that dogs here are not allowed in BC. They're not allowed on patios. We look to Seattle. There are restaurants where you can take your dogs in and have them with you. Um, Other places where they are allowed on patios. Do you think as a society, are we are we warming up to it or are we too slow to realize that they are uh, for many people part of the family and having a dog on a patio is not going to, to kill you with some some weird disease? Well, I think, I mean, there's there's a few issues there. I mean, there are zoonotic diseases that, that can be problematic for humans. But in general, the pets that we keep in our homes are vaccinated. We do take good care of them in that way in general. So I wouldn't be as concerned about um, about the question of an illness from an animal on the patio, uh, as long as you keep it off the table and that sort of thing. But, you know, you do have issues with socialization. Some animals are better socialized than others. So you might have rambunctious animals that are making trouble on the patio. And if somebody doesn't particularly like dogs or cats and just wants to go and have a peaceful coffee or beer or whatever they're there for, they may be disturbed by the animals. And I, I certainly think that we have to, you know, make room for, for various perspectives and, and have certain spaces that uh, people who don't want animals around are able to do that. But there are definitely a growing trend of having spaces that are also inclusive and people who want to have their animals with them as long as they're well-behaved are welcome. So having that balance, I think, is really, really helpful. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the research. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, if you are heading out to have a meal in a restaurant, how much research do you do before choosing a location? Do you check the website online? Do you look for reviews online? And does it matter to you? what you see before you go. A new poll done by Research Co. takes a look, and the numbers might surprise you. Uh, President of Research Co. Mario Canseco joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Mario, good morning. Good morning, Gail. Great to be here. Uh, first, can look, let's look at the numbers, uh, the frequency in which people go out, who eat out in restaurants. Were you surprised at all by uh, the number of times people uh, eat outside of the home? I was particularly when it comes to the age demographic, I was expecting those over the age of 55 to go out more often or those between the ages of 35 to 54. And it's actually the ones aged 18 to 34 millennials who are going out for dinner more often than, than others. Uh, you know, we have 13% of BC residents who say that they dine out a couple of times a week, but it climbs to 18% among those aged 18 to 34. So Millennials are responsible, allegedly, for killing a lot of things. Visits to the restaurant is not one of them. (laughs) All right. Uh, And what did you find about then? Because there is a lot of choice out there. There is certainly no shortage of restaurants. What did you find about what people, how people go about choosing where they're going to eat? Well, that was one of the things that really surprised me about the survey. We have 47% of BC residents who say they visited a restaurant's website before making a reservation over the past year. So there's definitely a change from, you know, that place two blocks away that serves this thing. Everybody's going online now. And this is definitely crucial for the restaurant industry. If you don't have a nice website that is showing people what the restaurant looks like, uh, what what you're offering, the menu, uh, it's going to be tougher to compete with those who have really nice uh, website presences. So, you know, the fact that almost half of us are saying, I'm not going to the restaurant until I go to the website, is certainly eye-catching. And what about the um, 
the idea then of of going there. So it does it is it the reviews on the website or people looking at the websites for like you said the pictures of the restaurant and perhaps menu items and what they can expect. It's a combination of uh, both. I think you know definitely reviews help for those who want to take a look at them, but it's also trying to create the ambience of the restaurant before you get there. And I think there's definitely some websites that are better than others. If you only have a menu, if you only have a couple of lists or a couple of pictures. It has become definitely slicker over the past few years. If you go back five, six years, websites were basically, here's where we are, and if you want to order takeout, go for it. Now it's completely different. They have videos. They have different things uh, that are making it more enticing, and they are making it easier for for those who are uh, uncertain about their choice to say, yes, I am going to this place. And I found interesting one of the numbers coming out of this uh, research as well, that millennials are more likely uh, to report waiting or standing in line for more than an hour to eat at a restaurant. It's an event for them. This is quite interesting for me because, you know, there's a lot of residents uh, who are middle-aged or over the age of 55 who say, I'm not going to stand here for an hour. Let's just find a different place to eat. Uh, But for millennials, it definitely seems to be part of, of the whole culture of things, uh, they're also more likely to take pictures of their food. So you're standing in line, you're essentially saying to everybody who's on your social media feed that you're waiting to go to this restaurant, you finally get to the restaurant, you take the picture. There's a third of millennials who say that they've taken pictures of their food. So there's definitely a situation there that is almost akin to going to the movies. It, it's a complete experience. You, you wait for an hour or maybe more than an hour, you take the picture, you register what you think to the whole world, and, and that is the way in which they are dining out, that they're doing it more often than others, so it's not a bad thing. <laughs> Although, I guess that raises a whole other question, and maybe it's a whole other research project, is asking, does anybody really look at the photos of your food? Does anybody really care what your food looks like? <laughs> that is definitely something that, 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 that we should look into. I mean, I, I do remember a survey about social media a couple of years ago, and, and one of the things that we found was a lot of parents complaining that all they got from their kids was pictures of food and not pictures of them. So something to look into in the future. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you also looked at the experiences, whether or not they're positive and tipping. And we've talked a lot about tipping on this program because there are some restaurants that are shifting to a no tipping uh, mo- uh, no tipping model, uh, more in the States, I think, uh, saying that if you look back at the history of tipping, uh, it started as, as quite a racist uh, action. It's uh, still a bit demeaning uh, to uh, certain uh, to, to servers. It can lead to uh, people getting better service based on their looks, uh, what they how they look at the table. Uh, but what did you find about tipping and people, uh, the amount and what they're doing when it comes to tipping in restaurants? Well, I think we are doing a lot better in, in many of the uh, positive aspects of dining out. Uh, we ask people if they have ever tipped uh, more than 20% at a restaurant over the past year. 38% say they have. There's only 21% who left the restaurant without tipping because they were dissatisfied with the service. So there's a big gap there. And I think it really shows... Uh, that the service industry is working well. There's not a lot of people who storm out of restaurants or who are disappointed with the way things went. But tipping is a tough one, particularly in a city like Vancouver, where you have people coming from other cultures. I do remember when I first came here and I went to dinner with uh, two colleagues uh, from school. One of them was uh, Chinese, the other one was Japanese. And the way they looked at the whole tipping issue was completely different. Chinese friends said, I'm not tipping. We never do. We never did. I'm not doing it. And I just told them, look, just don't go to the same restaurant twice. (laughs) And my Japanese friend said, if you tip, if you leave something on the table, it's insulting to the server. It's like you're saying you're not doing your job well and you need to be paid again. So it takes a while for those cultural intricacies to percolate and to make sure that when you're in a new country, in a new place, 
you need to do things differently. Uh, you also found, uh, I, I was in, uh, interested by this number, that the amount of people that complimented a restaurant was actually higher than those who complained about bad service. Yeah, this was almost a, a, a sociological finding for me, because you do see that there's more residents who say that their food was cold, that things weren't that great, and they weren't really going to be talking to the manager and complain, whereas we're more likely to say, oh, this was fantastic, let me talk to the manager, let me do something. So we seem to be very jolly when it comes to dining out, and, and I, I think that was one of the major findings of the survey. There's not a lot of people who are disappointed with things, and we tend to remember the good experiences more than the bad ones, so hopefully this will continue over the next few years. And what did you find out about, because this is one that always startles me a bit, in that I love going to restaurants and trying new foods, but I tend to only go to places where it's food that I wouldn't make myself or I just am bad at making it. If it's like, I'm not going out to eat macaroni and cheese because I can make that at home. I can't make amazing sushi at home. Uh, but you had some interesting findings about people will go uh, based on if the food is cheap, but even if it's not great. Yeah, that one was interesting in the sense that there's a gender gap that I really found quite interesting. Uh, there's uh, 36% of British Columbians who say they would go back to a restaurant where the food is great, but the service is terrible. So you definitely say, well, if, if the food is okay, I will, I will get by if the service is late or if things don't, don't go well. But there's 24% who say, I'm okay with a restaurant where the food is cheap, but not great. There's a gender gap. Men are at 29% of this question and women are at 18%. So you can see those discussions happening right now. But let's go back to that place. It's great. No, it's terrible. Oh, come on. Give it a chance, honey. It's not that bad. So Valentine's Day is, is, is uh, coming up. So there's going to be very interesting decisions about where to go because men tend to go for cheap and women tend to go for something that is better. <laughs> and even uh, finding that 5% say they would go back to a restaurant where the service is great, but the food is terrible. I'm sh Why would anybody go back to a restaurant where the food is terrible? Well, probably because you have some friends who work there or, or something <laughs> of the sort. I mean, one in 20, I, I thought... I, I, I honestly thought it was going to be lower than that. But you have one in 20 who say, it's okay. My friend works there. Let's give him a break. So that's the way it went. And, and I mean, the one thing that we definitely would do is go back to a restaurant where the food is great. But if it's too expensive, it's okay. 52% feel that way. But millennials, the ones who are supposed to be scraping to get by, doing things differently, trying to get a job, trying to get a mortgage, 70% of them say, I'll go back to a restaurant that is expensive. So again, it's the experience for the millennials more than anything else. I think we just solved why millennials can't get into the housing market. <laughs> Probably, yes. They're spending it all at restaurants. Uh, all right. Very interesting research. Mario, thanks so much. Great to have you back on the show. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you.